Hi, everyone. This is Danny, and welcome to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories, where we host conversations for healing and change. This season, we are focusing on mental health and healing. I hope these episodes are both eye-opening and give you a chance to reflect on your own journeys. Thank you for listening and enjoy. John McDermott is the body care manager at Natural Grocers and a good friend of mine with a gigantic heart. John shares in depth about his mental health journey and diagnoses. He has been hospitalized eight times and has what is called chronic suicidal ideation. Trigger warning, John discusses multiple suicide attempts. He showcases an incredible amount of strength and ability to persevere throughout this conversation. This episode is equal parts heavy and fun. We end up talking about boxing, masculinity, identity, and John's new passion for dressing and drag. I was really grateful to witness a story as powerful as this one and think you will have a similar experience. Here it is. All right. Well, thanks for joining the podcast, John. It's nice to have you. Oh, it's my honor. I am so happy to be here right now. Before we kick off, because there's there's so much to talk about today. Yeah, I feel really excited too, as we were just talking about. How did we meet and how did we originally connect? So we connected over City Year Denver, which is a nonprofit that is funded through AmeriCorps in which core members operate and volunteer at schools with low-income students. And Danny, the man, was a team (laughs) leader. So he was in charge of an entire team of core members. And I was not on his team, but I was a core member somewhere else. And Danny and I uh, had really great chemistry, kicked off really well. And the thing I've always admired about Danny is he very much leads from a place of empathy. And I try to do the same. I think empathy is such a powerful skill to have and something that needs to be cultivated. And he has that. And it's something I've always admired about you, Danny. And it's kind of what made me want to have a relationship with you in the first place through City Year. Yeah. I feel like when we first met, there was just kind of like a draw, you know, when you kind of have like a magnetic thing where it's just like, oh, I'm supposed to be in relationship with this person in some way or the other. Yes. And I honestly remember mostly talking to you about like baseball and boxing because I was super Mm -hmm. curious about your interest and all of that. Yep. But we'll get more to that later. I know. Where are you from? I am from Wheat Ridge, Colorado. Okay. Yep. Born in Iowa, so I'll be honest, I was born in Iowa, but I grew up here. Thank my you whole for family's being from here. With us. Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> first part of the podcast, being honest, where where I was born. But I like to claim native status because I grew up here. So nice. Yep. You know, I just want to jump into it for our listeners. This season's really special because we're doing a season on mental health and healing. And maybe could you just give us a little bit about where you currently are at with your mental health journey, and then maybe we'll work backwards from there. Sure, perfect. So first things first, I do not let my diagnoses define me. Mm -hmm. They are not me. I am my own person, and I am not some box that people say I am. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I am a person who um, has been diagnosed with a major depressive disorder as well as bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder. And currently, I experience uh, what's called chronic suicidal ideation. So to give listeners a perspective, for a lot of folks, I think it's, it's generally what people see when they think of suicide. It's seen as kind of like the flu, where you get it, and then you get treatment, and then you get better. For me, I have chronic suicidal ideation, so it's more like diabetes, where it's something I live with every day, and it's always there, and I deal with it by just monitoring my thought processes and doing various coping skills that I've developed over time. And I can get more into what I do to live with it and how I've recovered um, from the various experiences I've had. But just bottom line, it's something I live with every day. And it's kind of just like a running loop in my head of like, oh, I could kill myself. I could do this. I could do that. You know, and I formulate plans sometimes. But it's like an always running situation. That's wild. Yeah, it, it, that is a really interesting perspective, too, on calling it something like the flu. Like, mm-hmm. once you take out, like whatever's in you that's causing these thoughts, you'll be better. I think that is probably how we think about it societally. And I honestly have never heard of chronic um, mm-hmm. suicidal ideation before. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm, I feel really blessed just that you're here, that you're still with us. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Like you're just a good dude. And I think everybody who knows you wants you around. So um, like how long can you trace this back? So I trace it back to nine years old and it was started because there was a suicide in our community and I didn't know the person, but I heard about it through my teacher. Actually, I don't know if it was appropriate for her to share with us, but she talked about the incident and that was the first time where I kind of got the idea of, Oh, I could do that and not be here anymore. And I guess the best metaphor I can have is that was like planting a seed. Hmm. And then over time, that seed kind of grew. And it's not healthy. Like, I'm not saying it's healthy, but believe it or not, for me, suicidal ideation actually became a coping mechanism to deal with um, stressors that come up in life. Because if something were to happen, um, and I can get into this more later, but where I really first started thinking about suicide, and I don't want to get too much into all of my attempts, but the first time I attempted was actually because I got bad grades and I felt really bad about myself. So my coping mechanism was, oh, I got bad grades. I need to kill myself. And it's not healthy by any means. I'm not saying it's healthy, but it was a coping mechanism I developed over time. Yeah, that's interesting to reframe that for probably many of us that a way of dealing with a stressor is suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Like that can be considered a coping mechanism. Yes. So controversial thought, and I don't want to upset anyone, uh, but I do want to say we as a society like to think suicide isn't an option, 
but it is. It is something that we can choose. Mm-hmm. And it's not an ideal option, but it is, it is something choosable. And unfortunately, a lot of people choose it. I think it's really astounding the number of people who lose their lives by suicide in this country every year. And it's something I'm trying to advocate more for. But we lose more people to suicide every year than we lose to cancer. And there are twice as many suicides as there are homicides in this country. And the rate, and I don't mean to depress people, I read today that since the year 2000, suicides have risen. Yeah, something like the stats I've seen is like suicides have risen 31% since that year. Yeah, um, and that's not to depress people, but I think the point is that it's something we need to deal with. It's an epidemic. And I think by having these conversations and by spreading awareness, by learning about ways to prevent yourself from committing suicide, learning about safety plans, which I'm happy to get into, I think we can prevent unnecessary deaths because suicide is very preventable, you know, and that's why it makes me so incredibly upset that we lose so many people every year to suicide. I think you're right to, you know, talk to the listeners a little bit about this and talk in a way that's like, this is a tough thing to listen to. This Mm -hmm. is a tough thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And the unfortunate reality is it's very real and prevalent right now. Mm -hmm. And we're scared to talk about it. And Mm -hmm. I think you're really correct in saying like it is an option. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I can wake up and think about my life, I can also think about not having a life. Mm -hmm. Like, I think those are natural thoughts. I mean, to be honest, I've had uh, my own experiences with suicidal ideation a few years ago. I was much more, I had that thought maybe once a month for a few years and it led to some really, really dark times. And Mm -hmm. I'm thankful that a lot of therapy and treatment has supported me with that. But honestly, there's not a lot of people with the skills, the correct nurturing out there. You know, what is, what the fuck is correct nurturing, but still nurturing in general, there's people just who lack nurturing. I know, it's just a scary time, especially during COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. I read an article today that talked about mental health in regards to COVID and people getting depressed and, you know, unfortunately some people committing suicide. Sorry. So um, something I try to catch myself on um, and I would like to see the vernacular change. Instead of saying committing suicide, it's better to say died by suicide or killed themselves because committing sounds like a crime and it's very, it's very stigma. Yes. It's very stigmatizing. And from my perspective, very judgmental. So something I try to do, and I've met mental health care professionals who agree with me. I try to say died by suicide. So I'm going to correct what I almost said. I almost said committing suicide, but I meant to say died by suicide. So unfortunately, due to COVID, people are getting depressed and some people are dying by suicide. Thanks for that clarification and education Mm -hmm. um, for myself. Mm -hmm. You talk about being nine years old and this first coming up. And I know you have some stories from like middle and high school. And I'm wondering if you could take us through some of those. Sure. So first story... And I want to focus more on my mid-20s because that's when it's been really bad. But 
The first time I tried was when I was 14 years old and it was because I had gotten bad grades and uh, this is stupid by the way, but you got to understand I was a kid. I got bad grades and I didn't want my parents to find out. So I was like, oh, I'd rather kill myself than have my parents find out. And I tried on three different occasions. The last one was really scary because I was actually on a chair with ties wrapped around my neck ready to jump off. And I remember in that second, really thinking about jumping, I was damn near ready to do it. But what prevented me was uh, my little brother, my youngest brother, Jackson. Um, I just, uh, he was four or five at the time. And I didn't want to miss out on seeing him grow up. So that's why I didn't jump. Over time... I had plenty of close calls where there were various times in my life where I had access to guns. And, you know, there were a couple times where I held loaded guns to my head. Um, you know, I, I can't, um, I've lost track of the number of notes I've written, but the experience I really want to tell you all the listeners and you, Danny, about was about Three and a half years ago, I had been going through a lot of, just a lot, financial, emotional. At the time, I didn't know I was bipolar or borderline, so I had that going on. I was experiencing complex emotions because I had just finished city year, and I had just finished living in Alaska where I taught at a Native American village, and... The reason why that affected me is because I was just surrounded by systemic inequality and it was readily apparent. It was sickening apparent and it really upset me and it upset me to the point to where my mental health got hurt and I had a very jaded view on reality. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I got a paycheck and I had enough money to purchase a gun and I knew exactly which gun I wanted. I had been to the gun shop and I knew I had just about enough on the way to the gun store. I stopped at my university and watched a rugby game and on the sidelines was a younger person who I had mentored when I was in college and upon seeing him and he doesn't know this. I hope one day to tell him, But I saw him and I just thought about the impact I would have on him when he found out that I took my own life. So instead of driving to the gun store, I called the suicide hotline and drove myself to the hospital. And that kicked off an entire chain of events that culminated in me being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder as well as bipolar disorder. Thank you for sharing that. It is kind of amazing, to be honest, that you have these realizations where you think about other people when you're at that point. With my own mental health issues, and as many people know, I work with kids who've been through trauma and abuse. It's not normal, I would say, for people to think about others. Like you're, It's a very dark and deep hole that a lot of people get into. Um, for whatever reason. And it's hard to see that. And it's, it's really amazing. I think that Thank really you. speaks Thank to you. your level of empathy that you were kind of talking about earlier. Thank you. 
I'm going to tell you right now, because I used to work with kids too. Uh-huh. Sincerely, some of the kids I've worked with have really saved my life numerous times because when I was working with them, I thought about the impact I would have on them. Mm. That's really... I don't know if I'll ever see some of those kids again, but they in a lot of ways have saved my life. Like you asked me about baseball earlier. I was coaching a baseball team once. I was talking to my therapist and I told him about the ideation I was experiencing and how bad I wanted to do it. And he asked me, he just said, what about the players that you coach? And I just started bawling because I couldn't, well, I did imagine it. I imagined them going to practice and then someone telling them, Hey, your coach, died by suicide last night and I just that helped carry me through that time because I just couldn't do that to them you know what I mean I just couldn't do it yeah that's really powerful Mm -hmm. I'm curious when you were first brought yourself to the hospital. What was that experience like? What was the path to healing you went through? And so, you know, as you mentioned, the path to healing yeah. is very real and present still. Yeah. So it was a long, continuous process. I mean, I'll tell you about that first time. That first time was really scary. Going through the intake and being asked the questions that they ask And then being told, oh, you're on an M1 hold. You're going to be here whether you like it or not. Can you explain an M1 hold to everyone? Absolutely. Absolutely. So an M1 hold is a, I don't know what to call it. Um, I'll just call it like a mandated order that a hospital will place on a patient who's at risk to themselves or others. And it means that they will be hospitalized and under a watch for 72 hours to keep them and other people safe. So essentially, you're put into a hospital for three days and you have to be there whether you like it or not. There's no uh, excuse for not being there. By law, you have to be at the hospital. What was it like being in the hospital, receiving that kind of care? Um, if I may just share, I've been hospitalized, I've lost track, but like eight times in the past three and a half years. And each time has been different. I would say that first time it was very much like walking into a new world. When I've been in the hospital, it's literally like a new world. I see our society as like a fishbowl. And when you are admitted into a hospital, it's like you're in a brand new fishbowl with all sorts of colorful characters. I mean, and I want you to know, like, I hope I meet some of them again, but I've met some really, really cool people being in the hospital. The first time I went in, it was like a whole new world, meeting people like me, seeing different types of disorders and how people live with it. Other times it's been really frustrating because, uh, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not trying to downplay anybody's work, but there are a lot of weaknesses 
with the mental health system as I've seen from a patient's perspective. Tell us about yeah. it. What do you mean? This is your space. Thank you. Yeah, feel free to ask me questions if you want me to expand on something. I'm more than happy to. For me, it's I'm always second guessing what people want to hear. This is just me and you, man. You know, like cool. the listeners, obviously people will listen to it, but like this is me and you and this is your experience and your floor. Okay, cool. I would say the worst thing that I've experienced is being misdiagnosed. And I've seen people uh, be misdiagnosed with it. Then also lack of funding. (laughs) Most hospitals I've been in where you're only allowed to take a certain amount of food because of budget concerns. And I've even seen it where you're only allowed to take a certain amount of condiments because of budget concerns. Mm. And what I'm saying is one, you could be on your worst day, like your worst day of your life. And it's like, sorry, you don't get an extra Sriracha packet because we don't have any money. (laughs) And so that sucks. And then two, what does that say about our poor hospitals that they can't even afford condiments? Like, how are they expected to provide top-notch service if they can't even afford a ketchup, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. like, like, and then they're expected to work with vulnerable populations that need professional help. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so there's those problems. I would also say lack of innovation. Um, I was in a hospital three and a half years ago. And it's my favorite hospital in Colorado. I'm not trying to talk smack on it. But I went through the therapy groups because when you're in the hospital, you attend therapy groups through the day. Usually it's about four or five. And they range from like activity therapy. I've been in play therapy. I've been in substance abuse counseling where we learn about different types of substance abuse and how to deal with it. But I went through this hospital Uh, It's called Denver Springs. It's a really good hospital. If I were to suggest any kind of hospital, that's the one I would suggest. But I was there three years ago and I was there three months ago. And I did repeat therapy groups and they were exactly the same. The groups I went through three months ago were the exact same groups that I went through three years ago. Did they help you the first time or did they... They were helpful and they were thought provoking. Like they, you learned information. You were like, oh, cool. I never, I never learned about that. So like to give you an example, I attended one group where we talked about anger and I'm not a professional, so I don't know exactly what there are, but the therapist who presented said psychologically, there are different types of anger. Psychologists have a different name for the different types of anger and they manifest in different ways. So we took a self-assessment where we learned about our own anger style and what that looks like. So it was like super cool, super interesting. But then I went through the group a second time three months ago and it was literally the same group, like literally, like the guy used the same jokes. Like it was like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, like I was like, here's all I could think. You've worked in education. I've worked in education. If you have a teacher 
who teaches the same lesson and it's the same exact lesson after three years, that's not a very good teacher. And I don't mean to sound judgmental, but like generally what I've seen out of teachers is they develop, they get better, they, they teach it more effectively. And my point is, is like, there should have been that innovation and development. Do you, you know? feel like going through these hospital experiences, do you come out having more coping mechanisms? Do you come out learning more about yourself, working through emotions or no? I'm going to say no. Interesting. Yeah. Generally, no. Uh, I've gotten some good info from the hospitals, but in my experience, hospitals aim more to push you out. Once you're in, they pretty much just put you on medication and then shove you right back out into the world. If you're looking for more long-term care, there are programs. I'm sorry to say in my experience, they could be a lot better too. But as far as developing those long-term skills, you have to involve yourself in more long-term aftercare programs. What have you found has been most effective for you? I think uh, safety plans, taking a safety plan serious. It was probably like the third or fourth time that I was hospitalized where I really understood what a safety plan means. And then it wasn't really until recently to where I would say in the past year where I really started effectively using a safety plan. What a safety plan is, is it's a strategy and it's supposed to be an evolving document, but it's a document that you use to keep yourself safe. And before you get out of the hospital, you're always supposed to fill one out. What that looks like is you identify your triggers, which is really hard, by the way, because it can be really challenging to know what your triggers are. It takes a lot of self-awareness. On a safety plan, it'll ask you who your support people are. And that's the hardest one that I want to expand upon. Um, I'll expand upon it after I finish summarizing it. So it asks you your support people. It asks you what you're going to do if you start experiencing severe suicidal ideation. I'm trying to think what else. Let's see, what else do I have? Oh, things you do to keep yourself safe and things you can do to cope. Now. I will tell you a safety plan for it to work in my experience for it to work for me. It's had to be an evolving thing. It has to be taken serious and it needs to involve conversations with other people. So like I said, it asks you who your support people are. Can you give an example? Yeah. I'll give an example. My dad, he's one of my support people. Mm -hmm. What that means is I call him once a day and most of the time he answers every once in a while he doesn't. If he doesn't answer, I call my mom. They're just a safe person who I can talk to about what's going on and who I can communicate with. And over time, they've been able to see when I am going into a downward spiral and then being able to communicate, hey, I'm worried about you. I see you going into a downward spiral. Let's try to figure out what to do. Um, 
So I'm going to go ahead and go into the story real quick. So I actually experienced a mildly severe case of suicidal ideation this morning. I'm just going to show my prop if it's all right. So listener, you cannot see, but I am holding up a metal bar. And this bar can be inserted into the top of my closet. And I realized yesterday that it can support my body weight. So today, while I was in a pit of depression and emotion, it shames me to say, but due to my borderline diagnosis, I experienced really powerful emotions, one of which is anger. And I was experiencing anger around the number of people who die by suicide every year, as well as other systemic issues that exist. And I just, I was getting angrier and angrier. And then I felt powerless. And then I felt like there was no hope. And then ultimately my mind popped into, oh, I have that bar. I could just go get a tie. I could just go to Goodwill and get a tie. And so my first thought because of my safety plan, because I preemptively know that my mind's going to do that. My first notch on my safety plan is I call my dad. So I called my dad and he said, okay, John, um, get out of the house. You know, getting out of the house is going to help you get away from that bar. And so I did, I went and I went for a walk and it put myself in a more clear set of minds. And then As part of my safety plan, I've committed to myself that I keep my apartment space clean. What I mean by clean is safe. Like I don't have anything here that can harm myself. So literally after we're done with this podcast, I'm going to take this bar and I'm going to march to the nearest dumpster and I am going to throw it in the trash. And I am never going to think about this bar again. And I'm probably going to get in trouble from my landlord, but I don't care. (laughs) Fuck the landlord. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I move out, they're going to be like, hey, where did that bar go? And I'm going to be like, what bar? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, But once again, that takes self-awareness and a commitment to keeping myself safe. And it's taken me a long time to want to keep myself safe because I struggle with feeling worthy. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I struggle with self-love. I have gone through so many points where I've felt like I deserve to die. Like literally, I feel like I deserve it. In one of my suicide notes, I wrote about how I'm a sick dog and sick dogs deserve to be put down. Mm. What I've really worked on is seeing myself as worth it and being deserving of living a life. How did you and, get there? Oh, lots of lots of work. Meditation. Meditation is huge. I would say what keeps me going and what makes me want to live is leaving a positive impact on the world and literally leaving the most positive impact I can possibly leave. To get to the point of saying, I can leave a positive impact, you have to find value in your ability to leave a positive impact. Yeah. How, how do you get to that value? Oh, man. I'm going to need a second to think about it. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't like an overnight thing. Journaling is huge. That's one of my coping skills. And when I journal, I try to think of gratitude. 
And part of that is things I'm grateful for, for myself. Another thing, I really enjoy making people smile. And I really, like, really enjoy making people feel good. Like, I, I love making people feel good. It's one of the things that I live for. And it's one of the ways I try to leave a positive impact on others. And I just have these moments in the day where I'll say something or I'll do something. I'll be at work and I'll say something to someone and I can just see them smile and I can just see the warmth that is within them. And to me, that's really meaningful. And that's where I see, okay, there's so much I can't control, but I can have a positive impact on someone. Like I literally see myself doing it. And that's one of the things I live for because if I'm not here, I don't get to do that. You know, um, I think what's cool about that is you have intense diagnoses that mm-hmm. I personally can't relate to that level of diagnosis and sure. sure. mental health. However, like the tools you're using that are like really supportive for you mm-hmm. are everyday activities that when you were about to say, I was like, I was not expecting that. I was expecting something maybe a, a plan or a program I hadn't heard of or something that a psychologist who does, you know, EMDR therapy or something really intense. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing that you've been able to utilize these kind of like very accessible tools. Yeah. Therapy is great. I've been through DBT. Um, I see a therapist once a week. I've seen him for four years. Where I've really seen growth though is through reflection and coming up with solutions on my own. So like one of my solutions that I do, I'm really proud of this one. I can't remember where I came up with it, but I've been wearing this sucker for two and a half years. Uh, The listener can't see it. I'm gonna try to show you on the camera, but it's a rubber band. Yes, I know this technique, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was a technique. It was just something that I started doing. But every time I think about killing myself, which is all the time, like all the time, like at least once a day, like it just, it just happens, you know, Mm -hmm. and it can be something as silly as I'm bored. Like, like, I know that sounds silly, but it's like, Oh, I'm really bored. Life's boring, man. I'm maybe I should kill myself. (laughs) That's really silly, but it's like something you do or something could happen. You know, I face a challenge. Like let's say I'm driving and my car breaks down. One of the options is, Oh, I could just kill myself. Mm -hmm. So what I do when I have that thought is I snap my band And I intentionally think of a thought to counteract it. Mm. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's something as simple as, no, I want to live. You know, so it's like, like I'll have the thought, oh, I want to die. Then I snap it and I go, no, 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 I want to live. Or sometimes it's a little more vulgar. Sometimes it's like, oh, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going (laughs) to survive. Like, fuck you. You're not going to kill me. I view my suicidal ideation as its own separate entity. Like, I literally, this is a little weird, but like, it, it helps me. I view my suicidal ideation as a separate entity that's trying to kill me. And I literally, when I snap that band, I'm like, fuck you. You are not going to kill me. I am going to survive. I am going to find a way. You can do your best. (laughs) But there is nothing you're going to do to break me. For me, this rubber band is a reminder of, no, I can keep going. I can keep fighting. I can keep living. Long story that's one of the techniques I've done to really help myself. And I've only, I can't remember where I thought of that idea, 
but it wasn't from like a therapy book. It was something I kind of just developed on my own. That's amazing. I love it. And I know we're mutual sports fans and that sounds like you're getting ready for a boxing match. Yes. I cannot, <laughs> I cannot, uh, separate boxing. So it wasn't first boxing. It was first MMA, but, uh, I was in high school mm -hmm. and I used to watch UFC with my brother and we used to train UFC and we would set up matches after school. We'd be like, okay, this person and this person are going to fight. And we used to like go behind the school and have like fights and like wrestling matches and like jujitsu matches. And I was pretty good. Like I, I wasn't bad. And, uh, my junior year of high school, I got my heart broken, like, like first heartbreak, just mm, yeah. crushed. Yeah. The and worst. I remember I was walking and I was listening to rise against, have you ever listened to rise against? Total, like, yeah, we're same time period. That sounds very junior year of high school. <laughs> yeah, <right>? <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to this song and I had this vision of me winning the world title in the UFC. Mm. And in that moment, I was like, I am going to do it. I don't care how, but I am going to flip and do it. <laughs> after that, like it was my life mission and uh, then I actually pursued it after high school. And uh, when you're learning MMA, it's important to learn various styles and become a master in styles, mm -hmm. like in a specific style first. And then you develop into more a well-rounded mixed martial artist. And I took a liking to boxing. I really liked boxing and ended up competing in boxing as well. And uh, I've even fought in the state tournament, the Colorado Golden Gloves state tournament. And uh, Whoa, you were in the Golden Gloves? Yeah, 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 yeah. Three Which, times. That's, Three times. That's like amateur right before professional, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've fought some tough guys. I mean, I try to keep it humble and it's all in perspective. But I, some of the guys I've been in the ring with are just straight monsters. Some of them are pros now. I trained at one gym. Colorado Golden Gloves gym. And it's so cool because a lot of the guys who I trained with ended up becoming nationally ranked boxers. Wow. Like, like I just want to brag about this kid real quick because... Oh, yeah. Go in. He's a win for Colorado boxing. Like, he is a straight-up win. His name's Daniel Garcia. His nickname's Junebug. He was way younger than me when I trained. He was just a kid when, I, when we trained. And I remember watching him hit the bag and this kid would just have so much fun just bang 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 and he'd be popping off like eight punch combos nine punch combos ten punch combos and i just remember thinking like that kid is gonna be a killer when he grows up like i just remember thinking like that kid is gonna just mash people and uh then a couple of years ago he's like 17 now but I was on my Facebook feed and I get updates for Colorado boxing. And it was like Daniel Junebug Garcia ranked number one nationally. I want to take a moment and pause to thank all of our patrons for their financial contributions and monthly donations. It goes a long way to bringing this podcast to you in a high quality format, as well as supporting the volunteers at Soul Stories. If you want to become a patron, it's as easy as $2 a month. You get bonus content and the link is in the bio. Now let's return to our conversation. 
And I was like, hell yeah. I remember feeling like that was a win for Colorado boxing. Uh, I was like, like, hell yeah, you know? That's um, so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent a lot of time boxing. I'm really proud of my boxing career. It taught me a lot about privilege because I have a lot of privilege. Quick story. Yeah. I was going to a boxing show in Colorado Springs once when I was in college. And I was in the back seat with uh, this guy, super tough guy, super cool guy too, but super tough. He was one of my training partners. And I'm reading this book about philosophy and I'm learning about ethos and logos and pathos. And like, I'm like sitting there and I'm like, oh man, this is boring as can be. Like, oh, why did I get assigned this reading? But like, I had to read it. And then this guy looks over at me and he goes, hey man, what are you reading? And I like explained it to him. And then he was like, oh, that's cool, man. You know, I really wish I could read books too. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, you know, I just, I, I dropped out when I was in high school. And like, I just, I just, I don't have that skill. And I was like, damn, you know, and like, it wasn't like, it was just an eye-opening experience to my own privilege. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like, yes, that is privilege exists. And, you know, there's no judgment on that person, like at all. Like, I don't judge him at all. We actually have a great relationship. I saw him win the Colorado State Tournament and I was so happy for him. But he just taught me a lot about how fortunate I am mm -hmm. to where I come from, you know? Yeah. Because if I was born somewhere else or, you know, honestly, and I don't mean to be controversial, but if I was born a different color, I might not be where I am, you know? Yeah, totally. And the way I looked at it after that, I mean, how easy is my life that my problem is, uh... I have to read this book on philosophy. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I have it so hard. You know, like that's my problem, you know. And sincerely, the reason why I'm saying this is because I'm so grateful. But uh, I was always the only white guy in the gym when I boxed. Like I was mm -hmm. always the only white guy. And the only people who have ever, like I promise you, the only people who have ever said anything about the color of my skin are other white people. I've never been in a gym and I've never felt stigmatized because I'm a white guy. I've always felt welcomed. I've always felt like one of the boxers. And I am so grateful for that. You know what I mean? I've never, I've never had someone ever say something about me, you know, and like, I'm so grateful for that. You know, because when I was in there, I would feel really insecure. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd be like, oh, I wonder if one of the guys is going to say something about me. But no one ever did. You know what I mean? And I met some really cool homies and we were from completely different walks of life, but we were able to bond together in the ring, you know, because when we were in the ring, it was like none of that other stuff mattered. We were just in the ring duking it out. And I've met so many cool people from so many walks of life. I mean, I've been in the ring with dudes who were in prison. I've been in the ring with, you know, dudes, just a wide, wide range of dudes, you know, and girls. Yeah. I've met, I've met some very badass girls. I've met girls who like, you don't want to fight. <laughs> like you just don't like, it's, it's like, like if you try, it's like, no, don't do it. You're going to regret it. I believe that. Well, yeah. I think that's really cool. I think there's a few things coming up for me right now is a, that is why I love sports and in the creative community I currently exist in within 
Denver, there's not a lot of appreciation for sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what's so beautiful about it is it, it can be not always, but it can be the great equalizer mm-hmm. in terms of like, we're showing up, we have mm-hmm. a task to do mm-hmm. and we, we want to win that task and that's our yeah. goal. And how do we help each other get there? Yeah. And that's amazing. I mean, it, and also I want to just appreciate your perspective on white privilege and um, bringing that into there. Cause you know, we just had a whole conversation about suicidal ideation and I think it's a good thing for us to take into account that we can have struggles in certain mm-hmm. areas mm-hmm. and that also isn't a determining factor for the whole part of our life. Like you having white privilege and chronic mm-hmm. suicidal ideation can simultaneously exist. Yes, 100%. I am so glad you said that because it's so true. I heard a quote that said once, oh, I'm going to mess it up, <laughs> um, about how privilege doesn't mean that you don't have problems. It just means that you don't have problems because of the color of your skin or because of your gender or because of, right. you know, and I think that's really true. You know, everybody experiences suffering. Everyone does. And it's all valid. It's all valid. At the same time, though, privilege exists. I am a living testament of it. You know, another experience when I worked for City Year, I worked at North High School which is 12 blocks, 12 short blocks south from where I went to college and where I grew up because I grew up on the Regis campus. Mm -hmm. I went to Regis, by the way, for just so you know. If people Um, don't know Regis, um, maybe give some context for Regis versus North. Sure. So Regis University is a Jesuit college and it's its own bubble. I love Regis. I'm sorry, though. It is its own little bubble. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's its own little bubble of like whiteness. I'm yeah. sorry, I had to say it. It it really is like it's like. Regis like, people are gonna come after you. After I'm worried this. they will. <laughs> They're gonna come knock on my door right now. <laughs> um, but it's like its own little bubble of whiteness, and then North High, and it's changed because of gentrification. Mm-hmm which is evil, but that's just my opinion. North High at the time when I worked there was largely Latin population. And it was largely Latin population since the 90s. And in the neighborhood around Regis, there traditionally was a lot of gang violence, um, a lot of poverty. And most of the folks who lived in those neighborhoods of Latin descent. And... I remember serving at North High and just like being like, man, I grew up on the Regis campus, which is 12 blocks north of this high school. And I didn't know anybody from the neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like I grew, like I grew up and I didn't know a single soul. And I went to Regis, I got a degree. And then there's all these kids who go to the high school and they didn't get the opportunities I got, you know, and I regret to say this because I hope it doesn't bring shame to anyone, but my father was the baseball coach at Regis for a long time. It always bothered me because what well, didn't always bother me, but recently it bothered me because there weren't 
very many Latin players on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Dad, if you're listening, I don't mean to offend. Um, it's just how I feel. But there weren't any Latin players on the team, and there weren't any Latin players from the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a tragedy. I heard this story once from a friend I developed working at North High. And he told me about a player from the neighborhood who tried to play at Regis. This was before my dad was the coach. So my dad didn't know him. This player played at Regis and he ended up leaving because he didn't feel like he fit in. Mm -hmm. And that is so mind boggling because he's from the neighborhood around the university. That is really interesting. You know, if anyone should feel welcome, it's someone who lives down the street, right. you know? And I've heard that same experience from several people. And I worked at North. I volunteered coach baseball. The North High baseball program is so cool. I can't brag about it enough. I'm happy to brag about it even more. Um, <laughs> but it is such a cool program because the coach, Ernesto Marquez, like he is the man. Like he has been recognized by the Colorado Rockies for his contribution to the Colorado baseball community. And he grew up at North High. He experienced the summer of violence, which in the early 90s, there was a lot of gang violence among high schoolers in the North Denver area. It's North Denver, not the Highlands, by the way. And by the way, sorry, sidebar, I don't know where the Highlands came in. Like the neighborhood, if you want to get technical, the neighborhood is called Highland. There's no S. I don't know where Highlands came in, but it's Highland. And then I with that, that called, sorry, sorry, I get, <laughs> I, get, I get animated about this because this is gentrification stuff. With that, we've called the Highlands North Denver for the past like 50 years, and then it gentrified and everybody calls it the Highlands now. I don't know. It's just like, you know, um, Ernesto Marquez graduated from North High when it was rough. Then he went to college. He played against my dad, which was really funny. And then he came back and he said, I am going to make a city winning championship team and I'm going to build it from the ground up. And he has mentored and helped so many kids. He is a father figure to Mm. so many people. And under his leadership, North High has won the city championship three times in a row. Oh, I didn't know this. I want to check out some of that. We should go to a game when post-COVID. I I would love to go to a game. That would be awesome. Yeah, and it is so cool to see what North did because a lot of those kids, when they won the city championship, didn't come from anything. They Uh just grew up playing baseball, you know, in their backyards. And it was so cool to see them beat these behemoth schools who had, I hate to say it, but it's like these to see them beat teams of kids who came from everything to see these kids who came from nothing, beat these kids from everything. Mm -hmm. Um, It was so inspirational. And a lot of it was because of Ernesto Marquez. Um, So did Ernesto Marquez, did he play pros? Is he like a famous person? He didn't play pros. I mean, he's really popular in the community of like North Denver and the baseball community. Uh Like a lot of people know who he is, but he he never played pros. Yeah. He's just a local hero. And uh, I really admire him a lot. That's awesome. Um, I'll look him up. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I want to hear about your borderline diagnosis and what, sure. what is, what is borderline? 
So first off, I actually try not to read too much into it because it makes me feel really bad about myself, like really bad about myself when I read about uh, the various aspects of the disorder. But I will tell you what I know about it. And, um, or how does it show up for you? You don't even have to like speak definition wise. So I'm a quiet borderline first off. And this really yanks my chain, but it's just, it's all gendered. It's all gendered and borderline personality disorder is typically diagnosed more in women than men. So when I was first diagnosed, people, I would tell people and they'd be like, oh, that's really weird. That's usually like a girl's disease. And it's like, well, whoa. Yeah. Um, because it's very much marked by emotional instability. And, um, oh, that sounds like some, that sounds like some internalized psychology sexism. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but that it sounds like we could go down that route. Oh my God, we could go down that rabbit hole. Um, oh my God, that's that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> but um, I literally had someone, and these are their words, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but they said, "Oh, that's the crazy woman disease, the crazy ex-girlfriend disease." Wow. And, yeah. yeah. We did and go down like, that hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I will tell you, it's not a fun diagnosis to get. Um, I, my doctor who officially diagnosed me with it literally said, oh, you don't want to read anything about this online because you're not going to feel very good about yourself after you do it. Interesting. Yeah. And um, I just want to say, you know, this is to the listeners. If you are borderline, don't buy into that crap. Like really don't you're not what people say they are. I mean, I'm super high functioning. No one can even tell I'm borderline. Like people who listen are going to be surprised. And I'm a living testament that we aren't what people write about us. Going back to what what it looks like for me. Yeah. um, I'm what they call a quiet borderline. So a, a big piece of BPD is you feel really intense emotions, like really intense emotions. And you go through emotional cycles. And um, generally, people who have this diagnosis, they act out or they lash out. So they very externalize it. I internalize. I lash in. So I can be going through crazy emotional cycles and no one knows. So like today, for instance, to give you an example of today, I was literally in bed in a pit of depression thinking about suicide And then I got up and I went to my work and bought an energy drink and was like super happy and super like, Hey everybody, how's it going? And like, that is me. But like, that's an example of the emotional swings that I experience. I can go from thinking about death to thinking about how beautiful life is within a drop of the hat. With like a second, like in a second that could shift. Yeah. 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 Like, um, like, like, Generally, I try to keep quiet when I experience my ideation, but there have been times where like someone will be like, you were fine just a second ago. And it's like, yeah, I know. I know I was fine a second ago, but I'm not fine now. You know, is this at all related to, I don't even know if they call it this anymore, but bipolar disorder. So they do bipolar disorder exists. It looks different though. Um, I think there's a lot of myths between the two of them. 
but bipolar disorder, which I've also been diagnosed with, and I'm not severe. I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, low on the, like on the spectrum. I'm not very acute, but bipolar disorder looks more like experiencing mania, which are phases of like extreme energy, not needing to sleep, distorted view of reality, and then depression afterwards. So it's like a mania is like a really high and then after you get that high, you crash and you get really depressed. When I'm listening to your switches, what's the difference in that switch? Maybe this is too technical right now, but I'm just curious. No, 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 no. So I can just speak to what it looks like for me. Yeah. My switches with my borderline diagnosis, it's more of a day-to-day, moment-to-moment thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas bipolar disorder, while you do experience those mood swings... In my experience, generally, like, as I understand it, it's more manic depressive and a manic episode will last for days and then the depression Uh, or even weeks versus, and then you go depressed, which is like the complete switch. And that'll last for a long time as well. Versus with my borderline diagnosis, it's more day to day and like short term. So I might be feeling really great for like an hour. And then the next moment I feel bad for now, you know? I see. Okay. And keep in mind, this is just what it looks like for me. Someone else might say different. Other aspects of the borderline diagnosis, fear of abandonment is huge. Fear of being left alone and abandoned by people. Let's see. I got my book here, but uh, generally for me, it's that emotion dipping in and out a lot of borderlines uh suicidal ideation and uh the borderline um i hate saying that that sounds so otherizing um people who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder have a high rate of suicide attempts as well as suicide completions don't quote me on this because it's been a while but i think they're at like 20 something percent or 15 percent completion rate So like, that's something that looks like for me. So my chronic ideation, it's just a constant theme in my life. And that fluctuates. You know what I mean? Oh, and then another aspect of it is a shaky sense of identity. And I don't know if people will recognize that in me or not, but I do have a struggle holding a self. It's almost like I have an incredible amount of aspects to myself. And it's almost like I don't have like a super strong identity. It's like I have a a wide range of identities that are kind of just like wrapped up in the one. So it's more like an amoeba versus like a, uh, like a strong statue or something. Yeah, exactly. What are those parts of your identity? So like for me, I'm a fighter both physically and well, I don't fight physically anymore. I, I had to give that up because head head trauma. And and I do want to touch on that. As beautiful as boxing was, I would push sports on children. I think sports are really good for kids, but I actually wouldn't push boxing because of because of head trauma. Everything about the sport is awesome except for the head trauma. Yeah. And uh, I think that has contributed to my depression as well as my suicidal ideation. I'm a competitor, I'm an athlete, I have really strong emotions uh it it really does i'm not proud of it but i experience really intense anger 
Mm-hmm. No one knows that about me. Um, but like I said, I lash in, I don't lash out. Yeah. But then I also have like this gentle soft side that's very empathetic and very loving. And then like, this is part of my interest. Fun fact about me now. Fun fact. I am an aspiring drag queen. Ooh. Yes. Yes. I am trying to be a drag queen, which I have to tell you as badass as boxing was being a drag queen is like even more so like I'm telling you <laughs> being a drag queen is like super punk rock and super badass. And like, I, I love performing in drag. It is so much fun, but like, that's another part of it is I have like this unshaken identity. And then also, and I think this is for most people, but this is very strong for me, but like depending on the clothes I'm wear, I almost become a different person. Mm. And like, I've even met people who I knew like years ago And they'll meet me again and they'll be like, wow, you're like a completely different person than when I knew you. And it's like, no, I still am me, but I'm just, I have this very like fluid identity that like is constantly shifting and changing. And I think that is most people, it's just like accentuated for myself. Yeah. I actually had that experience with you because when I, now we've been connected for five or six years, but we were probably only like really connected for the first year and now mm-hmm. the fifth or the sixth year. And when I first met you, I really thought you were kind of like, I mean, your beard right now, you were like Colorado, like mountain man, boxing, baseball, no concept of like in a feminine side or interest in drag. And then like, it's almost like where I'm re-meeting you now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, yeah, there's so much like with the drag, with the makeup and the way like you dress, it's, it almost feels like a completely different person in my yeah. experience. And, and I want you to know, I actually feel really bad about that. Like, really? because I've had that experience. Like when I meet someone who I used to know and like, I can sense that, like that feeling of, Oh, wait, you're different now. I almost feel bad about it, you know, Interesting. Um, because I almost feel like I'm making the other person uncomfortable. Um, um, well, just know you haven't made me uncomfortable. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I appreciate 100%. I appreciate it, Danny. You're, if you, you're one of my heroes, dude. Like, I really appreciate <laughs> that's, you. And that's like, a high pedestal for me, but I appreciate it. <laughs> no, dude, you're, you're a badass, dude. What you've done with Soul Stories is so cool. Props oh, to you, nice. man. I grew up a performer. I was actually a theater kid. Mm-hmm. And then, and I was originally going to study theater in college. I did one year at Metro State studying theater. And then I had this like crisis of identity. And, and then with that, I wanted to be a professional MMA fighter. I basically had two dreams. I either wanted to be a professional MMA fighter or I wanted to win an Oscar. And I ended up choosing professional MMA for a number of reasons. And one of the reasons I chose that is because I wanted to be more traditional male. I wanted to be a badass. You know what I mean? I wanted to be that guy who everybody's like, oh, that dude's a man. And so that's very much the gender expression that I put out. And you got to understand, I'm I'm a performer. Mm -hmm. So I can put on outfits and then express what I'm trying to do. So I express nothing but manliness. You know, it it was who I was, you know, I'm not going to say it wasn't who I was, but it was just the masculine side of me. And then, so my last boxing match, 
I suffered a really bad concussion. I don't fight anymore, so I don't mind admitting this, but the punch that always landed on me was the right uppercut. I don't know why, but that was the punch that always hit me, you know, always hit me hard. And so this guy hit me with the right uppercut and everything went white and I just collapsed and I fell backwards. And then I slammed the back of my head on the canvas. So it was like, it was like, boom, boom. Mm. And then to my credit, and it's taken me a long time to give myself this credit, but I got up and I finished the fight. Most, a lot of people wouldn't have been able to finish that fight after that. But I got this concussion. And then afterwards, I had a conversation with my family members, most specifically my dad. And he asked me to stop boxing. So I did. And it set me into this such a dark place because it was basically giving up on this dream that I had had since I was a little kid. Yeah. And it was something I wanted so bad and I sacrificed for. Like, to give you perspective of how I sacrificed, I used to go on late night runs when I was in college. And like, picture me like running five, six, seven miles. And then I'd run by a house party and my friends would be like, going to a house party and they'd be like, John, come in. And I'd be like, Nope, I got to run, you know? And then, so I'd sacrifice so much and then I literally failed. You know what I mean? Like I did not succeed. I had such a difficult time living with that. Like I felt like such a failure. That was one of the times where I felt like I deserved to die. And where it ties into my masculinity is I didn't talk to anybody about it. Like I didn't have that conversation. I felt like I needed to suck it up and just soldier on. Mm -hmm. And then with that, I went through a rough relationship. I didn't talk to anybody about the relationship. I just kind of dealt with it. And then we broke up and I was very sad about it, but I was like, nope, not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to tough it out. I'm, you know, I literally didn't tell anybody like all my coworkers. Like I told them like maybe four months after we broke up. And they were all like, wait, what? Like, you know, like they were so confused, but I was, I was just in the state of, I got to be tough. And then like other things happened, like my family moved to California and I was really sad about it, but I didn't express it. And then in between city year after city year, I moved up to Alaska and I've spent a lot of time in Alaska and in Alaska, like, let me tell you, <laughs> Guys down here think they're tough. Like, like, like they think they're tough. Like it's a joke. But people in Alaska, not just the guys in Alaska, but everybody in Alaska is like unbelievably tough. Like, like, like on a whole nother level. Like, like surviving harsh environmental conditions. Yes. Yes. There were situations when I was living in the native village, like there was one time where the generator broke down in the village. So there were like three white people in this village of people of Inuit descent. And uh, we're trying to fire up the generator and it's negative 60 degrees out. Ooh, just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. That was a visceral <laughs> yeah. visualization I just had. Yeah, so we're trying to fire this thing up and we couldn't figure it out. And all I could think was, I am going to die. Yeah, I feel like yeah. that when it's when it's 30 degrees and I have to scrape a windshield. I feel like <laughs> I'm like, where's my gloves? Why? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. No, literally I had this thought and I was like, I am going to freeze to death. <laughs> and then this big man just walked in and fired up the generator like it was nothing and then just walked out. Like he didn't even say anything to us. He just boom, boom, and then left. And I was just like, wow, thank you. Thank you. You just <laughs> saved my weak white boys. But you know, like I, I literally was like, you just saved my ass. And uh, like there was another time where I was in the village and uh, I ran out of food. What I had to do to get groceries, because there was no grocery store in the village. So I would pay someone to fly me groceries mm -hmm. and I'm running low on food. I have like maybe a couple ramen packets and like some hot dogs. So I'm like, oh, I need to order food. So I, I call up Anchorage and I'm like, hey, could you get this food for me? And they're Fly like, okay. like helicopter? Small planes. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. So I call them and I'm like, hey, could you fly me in some food? And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll be there in two weeks. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Wait, I don't have two weeks. <laughs> oh, you're going to so, find me like buried in a bus like Chris McCandles from, <laughs> yes. from what was that book called? Uh, um, I think it's Into the Wild. Into the Wild. Yes. So I run out of food. They're like, we're going to be there in two weeks. So I start rationing my food and I ended up surviving. Like I'm still here, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I rationed the food. And then I also got meals from the, from the school and they weren't like extravagant meals. They were like, like a cup of fruit and like a hot dog. You know what I mean? But like uh -huh. I made it work and then I got my groceries and I was fine. And I was, talking to this gentleman and he was one of the village elders the village elders are cool like they're badass people like they've survived a long time and they've lived in harsh environments and so i'm talking to this village elder and i tell him the story and he just goes john why didn't you just go outside and like kill something <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, I don't have that skill. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know how that works. Yeah, I was like, I can't go out and hunt. Like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right. And he was just like, he thought it was so funny because like a lot of the kids who like lived in that village, they just, they just knew what to do. They could go out and catch their food and like, you know, they knew how to skin animals and, you know, do stuff like that. I met two guys and they were hunters. And like, when I say they were hunters, I mean, they were hunters. They, they weren't people who went hunting on the weekends. Like they were, they were like, that was their like, role. Yeah. They were literally just hunters. Like that's just like what they did. Uh -huh. and, yeah. And like, they were pretty cool. They would like go hunting and then they would bring food back and they would share it with other village members. And uh, so that was pretty cool. But like, Bottom line, I thought I was really tough. And then after I lived up there, I realized how soft I was. I also worked on a dock and that was really difficult work. I worked for a month straight, no days off, midnight to noon. And, it, you know, like those guys who I worked with were just like from a different life, you know, like they were from a different totally. lifestyle, different world. And, uh, like I said, I thought I was hard, but like to put in perspective where I was, my nickname on the dock was the bearded lady. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like most people who I meet down here are like, oh yeah, you're a pretty tough guy. And I'm like, eh, not up there. You know, so, you know, it is what it is. But basically I went through all this depression and when I was up there, I almost shot myself numerous times and it all came 
from this need to be tough Uh and this need to be self-sufficient and to never ask for help. Like when I ran out of groceries, I had people I could have asked for help, but I didn't. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm strong enough. I'm tough enough. And that mindset is good to a degree, but I took it to the umpteenth degree. And same thing happened when I got back from Alaska. I I tried to tough it out. I tried to Lone Ranger it. And then... And how did that shift? Yeah, I just, I was writing a play. I'm an author too, by the way. I was writing a play and uh, one of my characters was experiencing uh, gender dysphoria. In doing research for the play, I was like having conversations with people, you know, and I had one conversations with one of my friends and he said, you know, I think to get material for this production, you need to kind of become the character. So I was like, okay. So we went out and we went thrift shopping and we bought a dress. And then like, I walked down the street wearing a dress and I was like pretending to be a girl. And then like, I ended up for whatever reason, deciding to paint my nails. And I forgot why I decided, but I was like, oh, I'm going to paint my nails. And as soon as I did, I had this huge perspective shift. And this sounds really silly, but like, hear me out. I'm trying to paint my nails, right? And I like couldn't do it. Like I'm like trying to paint and my hands are like shaking and I'm like missing and I'm like smearing everywhere. And all I could think was like, wow, I'm this big, strong man. And there are like 10 year old girls who can do this and I can't do it. Uh And immediately my mind, like, I was like, wow, like there's like this whole world of knowledge that I don't know about simply because of my gender like painting nails in the makeup world is very basic and i don't know how to do that and it like really bothered me and i was like wow like there's all this undiscovered territory that i've never even considered like it's i've never even thought it an option yeah and and then i i grew a curiosity and i was like you know what i'm gonna explore it a little bit and so i started exploring um the feminine, you know, uh, basically from years 18 to 27, I was entirely masculine. And then after I had that experience painting my nails, I was like, wow, I'm going to pursue the feminine. And then being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, I started really trying to become mindful of my emotions. And I don't think it's a secret. Guys struggle with emotions a lot, myself included. I just started pouring into emotions and the more I did it, the more I started to let go of a lot of the really harmful, toxic things that I had embraced. Um, So now I try to articulate my emotions better. So like, you know, and it sucks because sometimes people look at me and they're like, wow, you're a pansy. And it's like, no, I'm not a pansy. I'm just expressing my emotions. Don't (laughs) do that. Don't call me a pansy. I'm not a pansy. You're a pansy. Um, But, you know, it's like being able to articulate that. And then I went through a phase, and I'm sorry if this offends anyone. I'm sorry if this offends you. But at the time, I I felt like I was trapped 
into masculinity and like I was trying to explore the feminine realm, but I just felt like I was trapped and everyone around me was like forcing me into this box. So I went into this phase where I was like, you know what? I hate men. Like literally I was like, I hate men. Like I, I went like Uber, like I hate anything masculine. I hate men. I hate patriarchy. Yeah. I just went into that place. And then that's when I went manic for the first time was around that time. And that was crazy. But after getting out of that phase where I hated men, I, I got to a place where I was like, I don't hate men. I just want to really pursue the feminine. And I want to explore that side of me to kind of free myself. I think we're a combination of masculine and feminine energy. It's not 100% one way or the other. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes dudes like you and me, we get sent this message that we're not even allowed to consider the feminine side of ourselves. Totally. And um, basically I was like, I want to pursue the feminine side of myself. And I went like super deep into it. And then last year I had the opportunity to go to a drag show and uh, it was a family drag show. Super cool show super controversial. We had protesters show up because they heard family. We, we let kids perform. And basically like these conservative groups heard kids and drag and they flipped out. So they showed up and they had signs and, and believe it or not, some of them were like neo-Nazis and they had written on Facebook and social media before the show. They were like, we're going to go to the show and we're going to shut them down and we're going to do all this stuff. And then an Antifa group heard about that. So they showed up. So we're at this drag show and there's like 30 members of Antifa like there. And then there's all these protesters and then there's like 18 police officers. And then there's just us who are like just trying to put on like a nice family friendly drag show. And it was like, uh, and I mean, it was crazy. Like, I don't know what these protesters thought we were doing, but it was like not deviant at all. It was like perfectly family friendly. It was super mm -hmm. fun. The kids loved it. Like the kids had so much fun. I'm sure and uh, anyways, after that show, um, one of the announcers came up to me and she was like, hey, like we actually want some adults to perform next month. Are you interested? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested. And, uh, you know, cause in my mind I was like, yeah, this is me getting to pursue the feminine, even though I'm a guy and, uh, yeah, hell yeah, I'll do it. And then I did it. And it was like, like, I don't know if you've ever had these moments where like things just feel right. Yeah. Like, totally. like that's what it was. I was like, wow, I need to do this. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, so I did it and then I uh, did a uh, performance for my family a couple months ago and it was super fun. And uh, you know, every once, like I, they let me wear makeup to work. I'll like do makeup. I'll even do like drag makeup. Like I'll draw on eyebrows and stuff like that. And they love it. They, they really encourage me. I'm really fortunate to work where I work. Um, but I'm actually going to be doing a show. It's coming up. I don't have a date set yet, but it's going to be a show to raise money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. That's um, amazing. Yeah, it's going to be so cool. I've got some really professional queens who are going to help out with it. I've got three performers who have committed to the show, and I'm hoping to get two more, at least two more. So yeah, it's going to be great. And I mean, long story short, basically 
for most of my young adulthood, I tried to be masculine and then I realized that I took it to a really unhealthy degree. And then I ended up pursuing the feminine and it started really simple. And then it started with painting my nails and then it kind of evolved into this big thing. And now I wear makeup all the time and I'm even willing to wear a dress in public of all places. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just, I know it makes people raise an eyebrow, but I've found pursuing the feminine to be really liberating for me. And, well, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I feel like this is, this is such a good, you know, full circle conversation, mm -hmm. starting with suicidal ideation. And mm -hmm. I mean, this conversation has just really felt like, a tale of survival, honestly, to me, is like the will to live, the discipline to keep it happening, utilizing your resources. Um, if for some reason, I came into this thinking you would have much like clear-cut solutions to the things you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And what I'm walking out with is, okay, this is what I'm going through. What do I have at my disposal? How can I support myself? How can I leave the impact? How can I support the people around me? How can I support myself? And it just seems like this journey's constantly evolving for you. And yeah. I think it is clearly like you're ha you've explained like three or four different journeys that are simultaneously happening at the same time. <laughs> And from the masculine to the feminine and from, you know, boxer to drag queen. I think this is so fucking cool. It's just, yeah, it, there's just a spectrum of life in this conversation and it's really inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for giving me the platform um, to talk about this stuff. So when you've considered suicide as much as I have, and when you have the level of empathy I have, I think a lot about the impact my death would have on other people. And so I've made a pact to myself that I'm not going to just live. I am going to do the opposite of what my death can do. Because if my death is going to leave that big of an impact, my life can do, imagine what my life can do, you yeah. know? And that's what I am determined to do. And that's one of the things that keeps me going is I have to live life so that I can do what I'm supposed to do for the world, you know? And it looks different in so many ways, but I am going to live, not just survive, because there have been points where I've just survived, but I am gonna live, and I'm not just gonna live, I'm gonna do something great with it. Mm. And I think I'm doing that right now, and I'm looking for more and more opportunities to do it in the future. And uh, I'm hoping with my art, I'm hoping with my impact on other people to uh, do what I want to do. That's really beautiful. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for oh, being it's my vulnerable. Pleasure. And just thanks for being you, man. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. I mean, <laughs> dude, thank you, man. I mean, this is so great. Uh, this, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode and supporting the podcast. I absolutely love this project. I want to thank you, the listener, our guests for sharing their incredible stories and Kamga Chasa, the magic maker, the producer of the Soul Stories podcast. If you want to support us, leave a rating and or review, share it with a family member or a friend. This is Danny signing off.